Constructing your life is about much more than just building a bank account. Each week, join real estate entrepreneur and mindset coach Austin Linney as he interviews guests who are constructing their dream lives and impacting the world around them on a daily basis. If you're an entrepreneur or wanting to start a business, or you just want to hear motivating stories of how others have overcome the odds, you are in the right place. And now for your host, Austin Linney. Guys, welcome back to Construct Your Life. Austin Linney here. We got a real special guest here. We got uh, Mr. Dylan Slaughter. How you doing, my brother? Doing well. Thanks so much for having me, Austin. Now, guys, I don't think that you're ready for this. I don't know how much I'm going to talk because this story will send you to the to the moon and back because he we, we, we got the chance to meet last week uh, from a mutual friend, Leland, uh, and just an amazing story. This is an amazing human being. Super happy to be connected with them. So we're going to let him run with it. We're going to let him just buckle up, boys and girls. Uh, and so you can start wherever you want, my brother, and we'll just go from there. Awesome. Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, yeah, Leland, we were just talking about him. He's an incredible human being, and I definitely wouldn't be where I'm at without, uh, without his friendship. And I think, you know, I look back, and I'm sure you do too uh, with your story and so many people impacting you along the way. But, you know, my, my story starts out by who wasn't in my life. And, you know, my dad took his own life a month before I was born. And so I was, I was born out of adversity. And so, you know, as well as anybody, what that can do to a human being. And I think, you know, when we look at adversity, it causes some people to fold and it causes other people to double down. And ultimately I've realized that, Anytime I've folded in my life, my problems have only gotten worse. And when I've chosen to double down and, and really dig my heels in, in facing the problem at hand, I've, I've grown and I've come out on the other side of it better than ever. So, and like I said, folks, we, we're just getting warmed up. Uh, that's the appetizer. Uh, but something that you made a point to me when we talked, and this is really important. I want to stick here for a minute. There's a, you said that you could have used him dying before you could have created a story around that, which it would have been a negative thing and you've chosen to do the opposite, right? So why don't you touch on that for a second before we move on? Cause that's an important point I want to make. Yeah. I think, you know, regardless of what the situation is, so many people are controlling or writing a narrative and, and living out a story that's being written by someone else. You know, we have, from the time we're born, all these expectations are put on, on us. Uh, you know, we're so-and-so's children, we're such and such as brother or sister. And we start to develop this identity that the people around us designate to us. And so I was very fortunate that my mother never let that define who I was or who I was going to be, who I was going to become. And so I think it's important regardless of what adversity you may be facing in your life. I always tell people, you know, I, I like to be vulnerable because it creates a space where other people will share things that they normally don't share with other people. And, and we get into the, the nitty gritty in a hurry. And so it's like, yeah, those things have happened to you, but they do not define you. And so when we can start to extract the lessons from the adversity rather than ha have the adversity define us, you know, I'm, I, although I'm a product of, of suicide, it's, uh, that doesn't define who I am. And there's so much more to me than that. Um, and, I, and so there's, there's so many lessons that I've learned and being able to share that and use what, what has happened to me and the stage that has been set before my life to be able to relate to so many other people and, and uh, meet them where they're at along their journey. Because I come across a lot of people who have allowed different things to define who they are. And it really creates this almost like a ball and chain scenario where they're dragging it everywhere they go. That thing that has happened to them, that unfortunate circumstance just continues to weigh them down and pull them back. And, and that's the story that they're telling themselves, right? Is like, Oh man, if this one thing wouldn't have happened to me, I'd be so much further ahead or I, I'd be, if this, then that. And it's like, you can't control what's happened to you. The only thing that we can control is the right now and uh, where that's going to lead us to. And so that's, that's my focus. And we as people, right, especially when you get into a new relationship, and I'll, I'll stick it there when, oh, 
like not only do you get me in the new relationship, you get my nine pounds of bullshit back here too, right? And let me let me un, let me unpack all this crap for you, right? And this is a story I told myself for fucking years, right? And we have a choice, right? And I always relate it to COVID because that's what we're dealing with right now. And the joke that I say, and you'll get a kick out of this, there is somebody in their 30s right now that 50 years from now at 80 years old will be sitting on a porch going, COVID ruined their life. And it was six months out of an 80-year life, right? And every day that you waste not taking ownership of your story or not choosing to look at it as a gift to you, is, is a day that you take away from uplifting somebody else or you chasing your passion or you giving somebody what they need. Because look, and you'll understand this more as the story goes on, guys, this, the stuff that me and him have been through, this, it's no longer about us anymore. It's about what we can give to the world by sharing our story and, and what you said in the beginning, being vulnerable. People ask me, how do you lead out when you meet people? Oh, Drug addict, homeless, alcoholic, divorced, like right off the bat. Like, so we know where we stand because that allows them to drop their defenses down and they go, okay, like this dude's real. Right. And I think in the social media world, the Instagram world, um, not enough people are presenting that side of their life. Totally. Yeah. It's like, I, I remember working in an office and how many conversations I'd have where it was like, Hey, how's, how you, how you been? How you doing? And it's like, Oh, I'm fine. What does that even mean? What does that mean? And then when you introduce yourself as, you know, uh, the cliche and they think they need to be perfect too. And it's like, no, no, let's be real here. Dude, it's funny. It's funny that you say that. I, (laughs) somebody brought this to my attention the other day because I don't even notice I do it. I leave back some information for some parties because I don't want to continue that conversation because it's not useful information, right? But then when you meet somebody who's enlightened or you meet somebody that's vulnerable, there's a whole level of conversation that's entirely different. Guess what? I'm going to let you in on a effing secret. I live in Texas. It's fucking hot here. Like, I don't want to talk about how it's hot for 120 days. Well, how's the weather? Well, it's fucking hot. Like, let's talk about something that matters. Let's talk about something that can move us forward and, and help somebody and and you know what? It's funny. And I, I wonder if you do this too. Anytime I'm struggling, anytime I'm in a bad mindset, I'm worried about what I'm going to get out of it or what the result is for me. And the moment I do that, instead of understanding what I can bring to somebody else or the value I can add or something I can lift somebody else up, that's when I can get out of my head. Does that ever happen to you? Yeah. Yeah. When we, when we can start to lead by what we can give instead of what we can take. Yeah. It just changes the game completely. It's Um, amazing. And I don't want to stick there. So let's, let's keep on going. Let's, let's, let's give them all the juicy details and and you can kind of go from there. Yeah. So, you know, I grew up, I'm from Dyersville, Iowa. So I'm a huge baseball fan. You can see the stuff behind me is I I grew up in the same town as the field of dreams. So my mom was the youngest of 12. I'm one of 41 grandkids. And so I was very, very fortunate to have, uh, you know, it's interesting, like on my dad's side of the family, I didn't really get to meet them a whole lot growing up. They weren't um, active, actively in my life. But on the other side of that was a completely different story. You know, we'd have 120 people at my mom's Christmas every year. Uh, and so we'd pass the microphone down every year. Uh, we'd get up in front of the rest of the family and give a highlight of, you know, I'm dealing, I'm in fourth grade, I'm playing football and baseball and math is my favorite subject. And, uh, that, so we got to know everyone. I know all 37 of my first cousins on my mom's side. And now they have, I, I think we're up to like 80 great, great grandkids. And so, um, it's fun to be able to have that, you know, cohesive environment where when life does throw you a curveball, we got a whole army ready to take this thing on. And so I, I I don't think I realized how lucky I was until that army showed up for me. And so, you know, high school did all the things, checked all the boxes, played the sports, uh, football, baseball, wrestling, got good grades. I was an Eagle Scout. It seemed like everything that could go right did. And I went to school, played a little baseball, and then all of a sudden life started to throw a little adversity my way. And so 
when I was 22 years old, I was diagnosed with melanoma the first time. So I have a, I had a mole on my neck. And so I have a seven inch scar that runs from the top of my ear to the middle of my neck right here. And, uh, you know, to be honest, it was following a breakup and, you know, you know how that goes. You start to identify more as someone else's significant other than you do yourself. And, uh, again, it's just like the narrative that we place around our life. And when that is swept out from underneath you or taken from you, however you want to frame that, uh, it's all victim mindset, right? When, when things are taken from you, it's like we never own those things. Um, but, I started to fall down this path where I was living in a reality that I wasn't comfortable in. And instead of, you know, saying, trying to solve what was going on and really address some of the things that were going on in my head and, and around me, uh, I started to turn to things like drugs and alcohol and even something as simple as food, you know, uh, it all creates the same endorphin, uh, that cocktail in your mind that helps you escape reality and find comfort. Um, in a short period of time. But, you know, like I said earlier, the more you uh, run from reality and mask with those things, it seems like the worse those problems tend to get. And so uh, I wanted nothing to do with being a 22 year old with cancer. People would ask me about the scar on my neck, come up to me while I was at the bar and say, Hey, your neck's bleeding. I'm like, Thank you. But no, it's not. <laughs> um, and then that would start a conversation that I definitely didn't want to have. And so it was just one of those things where that was the last thing I want to identify as was a 22 year old with cancer. And so I had the surgery in April and then, uh, they, they sewed me up, said everything was good. They checked my lymph nodes. Uh, there was no more cancer in me. And, uh, that December I was in a car accident with a high school classmate and a friend of mine. And there were six of us in a truck. It was an icy night in Iowa. And so, uh, we, crossed the center line and hit this ditch and up into this field and then uh, went a little bit further and hit this uh, creek bed and that caused the truck to roll like six times. And so when we came to a halt, there was snow on the ground. I didn't know where my cell phone was. We found it in the, in the water the next day. It had flown out of the truck when we were rolling. And uh, I opened my eyes and I could feel the glass shards in my mouth. And I looked over to my left and the girl that was in the back seat uh, behind the driver was partially ejected. And so the window had bashed out behind me. And so I crawled out the back of the truck and pulled her out from underneath the, the truck because it was sitting on its side and started to do CPR on her. And so I don't know why I didn't go into shock. Maybe I was so numb to reality that I couldn't really comprehend what was going on. Maybe it was the fact that uh, my stepdad was in EMS growing up, so I'd go down to the fire department on Sunday mornings and uh, practice CPR with the guys. I don't know why I didn't go into shock, but um, everyone else in the vehicle did, and so I started trying to resuscitate her, and unfortunately, I couldn't, and so I got to share those last mo uh, moments of her life with her, and that was really hard for, for me after the event was over, you know, the days following and, you know, the wake and the funeral and having to talk about it with all the people in the community who had so many questions about what had happened and this, that, and the other thing, there was a lot of rumors uh, flying around and just having to process that at 22 years old is not something that ever, anyone should ever have to see as someone uh, experienced their last moments of life, uh, especially in a traumatic event like that. But, um, it really got to me and I started to turn heavier and heavier into those, those things that we talked about before. So it's one of those things where the habits we build in the, in the smallest moments and how we handle adversity in the smallest moments tend to magnify when, when the problems get bigger. And so um, things came to a forefront the following March uh, where my mom <laughs> woke me up in my college apartment shaking me awake, asking me if I was okay. And I was a little bit confused because I didn't know what was going on. I had gotten drunk and high the night before and she, uh, she was expecting to find me dead because uh, my friends had reached out to her, uh, worried that I was either going to hurt myself or take my own life. And what they didn't realize was it was the uh, 23rd anniversary of my dad committing suicide. And so, uh, you know, I had 
I had gotten myself into this case where I had been doing so well in school and then I just stopped going completely because I didn't understand what my purpose was, where I was at in my life, or have any sort of direction on where I wanted to go. And so fortunately, I had good friends around me that interjected, intervened, and got the one person involved that they knew could get through to me at that point in my life. And that was my mom. You know, her and I have always had a pretty unique relationship because although I'm the oldest of four boys, I'm kind of like an only child because I'm the only child she had with my dad. Um, but I'm also all that she has left my dad. And so uh, her and I have had a unique relationship and she was there for me um, when that happened. And I left school, went home, coached baseball for the summer, tried to get some sense of normalcy and a foundation back underneath me. And, um, you know, I finished the baseball season coaching and um, I went to an Iowa football game actually that October. So it was just about 18 months after the original surgery. And I woke up and I had this just massive golf ball sized lump uh, that showed up overnight um, right next to the scar. And so I knew the cancer was back. I just didn't know how bad it was. And, you know, for the day while I was at the football game, I, you know, kind of pretended like I didn't know what was wrong, why I had developed this overnight. Cause I'd, I was out with friends the night before they saw me the, the next day and were like, what, where did that come from? Like, well, I don't know. Um, and went back up to Mayo Clinic the following week. And that's when they found that I had tumors in my liver, lung, neck, and three tumors in my spine. And uh, gave me the bad news that I had probably less than 15% chance of survival and no real good options as far as treatments were concerned. Sorry, give me a minute. Um, <laughs> Yeah, guys, rewind all that stuff. And I'm, I don't want to begin to know your life and I don't want to begin to even try to understand all those emotions in that 18 month span when everything's going so fine. But what I resonated with in your story was your mom coming to see you. And, yeah. and the reason I resonated with it is because and I haven't told this story much. I could tell you the Christmas and the birthday that I was sitting at my desk in my apartment doing crystal meth, figuring out ways to lie to my parents to not show up because I was so strung out, mm -hmm. not looking at myself in the mirror. And you and I both played sports, you know, Hey, I think I'm pretty good looking. You look pretty good looking. You know, my dad's a doctor. I grew up in a country club neighborhood, right? Everything looks on the surface to be so amazing. And as I peel back the layers, I'm sorry, I'm getting emotional. There was deep-seated stuff there in my childhood that maybe I glossed over or maybe I created a story, whatever the fuck you want to call it that didn't exist. And the thing that I searched for my whole life, you can be okay with your father. You know, take, you can make peace with it. You can't be okay with it. You can make peace with it, but there's still a big missing part of your life that you wanted him to be at the baseball games and you want it. And I think only people that have been down there, when people look at it, the surface, I don't understand how you could go there but I do. And I think that's why we connect so well because you're telling yourself that it's not that bad. <laughs> yeah. You're, you know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I've shared with people that, you know, like honestly there was moments where I contemplated suicide and part of the appeal to it was like getting to meet my dad for the first time, you know, like you, you can start to justify those things. And it sounds like now it sounds so twisted, to say something like that, but in the moment, and that's what I think people don't really understand when people do choose to, uh, to take their own life. It, you know, it gets tossed around like, Oh, it's a selfish act and, and this, that, and the other thing. But when you're in that place, when you're in that deep, dark place where you feel like you have nowhere to go, no one to turn to, 
uh, you truly feel like you're a burden to those around you. So it's far from selfish. You think you're doing everyone else a favor, not creating another problem. There is no harder, and I mean this. I'm not talking about my mom. I'm not talking about stubborn people. There is no harder person to connect with, to rip out of a cycle than somebody who is down that deep. Because there is a bunker, victim, pain cycle mentality of abuse to oneself, not anybody else, that is a revolving door of negative waterfall cascading, of just self-loathing, you know? And, and there's a brief, because here's what they don't tell you about drugs and alcohol is that it's really, really good the first time. And then after that, it's not that great, but you're still chasing that first time. And, and it's, it's, that, it's that simple distraction. But when, when you wake up in the morning, the problems, the self-loathing, the promises you made, you, didn't, you broke to yourself are still there. And you still have to face these people in your life that care about you and they're watching you you know, and, and look, I sit here and I, I, I want to applaud and like shake the hand of your friends who called your mom, because that's not a lot what a lot of people would do at that age. Yeah, the, one of the things that resonated with me was, uh, you know, just um, like when you get to that point, it's almost as if you're, you're, you're making up lies to cover up uh, other lies. And you're like living this double life almost where it was like, I was going to school prior, prior to that. I was doing really well as far as grades and things were concerned. And I thought I had a clear path in front of me. And then all of a sudden the, the water gets murky and, and you're trying to like come up with reasons why you're not going to class and justifying that. But while still trying to maintain this facade to, you know, parents and things who are expecting you to, to do the thing and, um, it, yeah, it really creates this double life. And that what it does is it just creates so much friction inside where you're like, ah, I know I'm capable of more, but I'm constantly like anxious and covering up tracks. And then I get depressed because I'm letting myself down and not keeping those promises. And it's just this vicious victim cycle to your point where it's like, you can't win until you own up. And <laughs> Until you have a human, which happened to me, literally, what I say, not let me off the stick. I mean, he literally just said, mother effer, you, dude, if you're not going to take credit for any part of this story, you will never be better. Yeah. And you just have to own your shit, man. You have to stare that demon in the face. And just beat the shit out of it. And it's not easy. It's not great. And guess what? You're probably going to lose some friends. You might lose some sleepless nights. But you have to understand that on the other side of that thing, if there's anybody out there that's hurting right now, on the other side of that shit is beauty. Because you can stand up and you can tell your story. And if you save one person with your story... That's all that matters. Yeah, it's interesting how life works. You know, uh, I I shared that I had very few options, and so much of what I focus on now is that story that I'm telling myself, but also the people that I involve in my life. And so, uh, when I was at Mayo Clinic, I went back up there where I had the surgery done when the when the lump came back, and uh, they they told me that I had less than fifteen percent chance of survival, and I couldn't remove. Uh, the tumors with surgery because they were in too many different places and in my organs. And so they presented some uh, experimental treatments and kind of around the mindset of like, well, we can try it. It might not work. Um, basically saying at 23 that you're probably going to die. And so it's interesting, you know, we went and got a second opinion at the university of Iowa and they presented the same experimental treatments, but instead of saying, you know, it's your only option. They said it's your best option. 
And just that small tweak in the language and what that does for your mindset, but not only my mindset, but feeding off of that conviction of the medical team and staff there to say, you know, we're going to give this our best shot. And, you know, we're going to try this thing and, and uh, see if it works. And we think it can work. And so just having that personal um, treatment from the staff there versus not feeling treated as a person there because it was like, ah, oh, we have to talk to this person because you have a tumor here. And, you know, we can't really talk about the tumor here because we're not experts in that area. And so it, just those small things that go from making you feel like, uh, you know, you're a, a problem or a burden to like, they're there for you and they're going to lift you up on those days where you can't fight by yourself. You know, Stuart Scott in his, in his speech, I'll never forget it. I was battling stage four cancer when he got his SB award and, and made that speech where he said, uh, when you die, you don't lose to cancer. You beat cancer by how you live, why you live and the manner in which you live. That just turned my whole world upside down. Um, because all of a sudden, like I couldn't fail even if I died, it wasn't that I lost to cancer because it was, you know, in that moment. And it was during that time where I was thinking about and having other people tell me like, someday you're going to tell the story about how you overcame this and you're going to inspire other people again, like not making it about you, but helping other people find their strength in their adversity. And so that just turned my world upside down is like, what is failure? Failure is us putting expectations on the world and then not meeting them. But what if we just changed the game? You know, what if those expectations weren't so set on an outcome, but rather a system versus a goal? It's like, how do I choose to live each and every day is a system versus the goal of beating cancer. You know what I mean? And so it's like, when we play that game, when the game is how do we live each and every day versus stuck on an outcome of I'm not a success unless I do X, unless I beat cancer, unless I win this game, unless I win a championship or, you know, make X amount of money. If we just focus on each and every day and the process of winning each and every day, our life is going to be a success. And so can we just, can we, can you just be a coach and I'll come out of retirement and I just did. I I feel like I'm in a locker room right now. I feel like that uh, old school when like uh, what's his name? Will Ferrell's banging the chair up against what we're not going to do right now. Like, dude, you're getting me pumped up, man. Like I'm ready. Yeah. And so it's like, that's, and it works whether we're talking about athletics, whether we're talking about business, whether we're talking about personal life, there are systems that we can put in place to create those small wins, build that momentum and start to stack those bricks of success to build that, you know, to build that legacy that we ultimately want to leave behind. And so, uh, you know, I was, I'll say I was fortunate. Did you have something to say? I just want to ask you, because I've never spoken to somebody in depth about cancer like this. 15% chance to live. You're fighting it. Stuart Scott gives a speech. What, where's the fortitude? What are you telling yourself in these moments where you're like, no, dude, there's more. I'm going to make it. Like, you know, that's not what you're telling yourself every day. But what are you telling yourself? in those moments that you don't really want to do the chemo, you don't really want to do the, like, what is the drive to get to the other side? Yeah. So there was really kind of three things that happened to me. So as part of the experimental treatment, I spent four weeks in the ICU. So um, it, it was, it was all experimental. They weren't sure what was going to happen, but the reason I was in the ICU is because I was doing treatments every eight hours for as many as I could take over five days stretch. Then I'd get a week off to recover and then do it again for four weeks in the ICU. And so um, there was a few things that happened there. Uh, it was really, really tough on my organs. And so uh, I had a couple close calls where, uh, you know, like one night I woke up and uh, there was beeping and alarms going off and I wasn't sure what was going on. And I was kind of half out of it anyway, cause I was just so drained because there was no sleep schedule. I was, I would do blood work at 6am treatment at 8am. And then 
every time it was like clockwork about an hour and 15 minutes after the treatment was administered, I'd go into full body convulsions. It looked like I was having a seizure and I felt like I was really cold. And so they'd put a heating pad between my legs and mummy wrapped me with like seven blankets. I'm not kidding you. It was like seven blankets mummy tucked around me and I just lay there and shake uh, for like an hour and 15 minutes to an hour and a half. And again, it was the same thing almost to a dime. Uh, And then after that hour and 15 to an hour and a half was up, then it would just turn completely on its head to where I felt really hot and I couldn't take enough clothes off. And so, what I was taking was an immunotherapy treatment that instead of using chemo, which is a outside source attacking the cancer in your body, immunotherapy retrains your immune system to recognize the cancer as cancer. So it can, you know, uh, identify and attack it on its own. And so that was my body kind of doing a system reset. If you can relate it to your computer, downloading an update, it was like downloading an update and restarting, uh, so that my, and retraining my immune system to say, Hey, that's cancer. We, we shouldn't be feeding that we should be fighting it. And so, uh, through that process, you know, I was only getting maybe two to three hours of sleep here and there. And then, um, the next round of treatments and blood work would start again. And so I had that close call where I woke up to the nurses and the doctors. Um, and then I actually, uh, got to experience, someone else's last moments of life across the hall from me. So it was like 12 or one o'clock at night and everything was dark, but my, my door was open. And so I could hear there was some things going on across the hall and I got to experience what that last moment was like, uh, for her friends and family. She was in the ICU for a completely different reason. She was an uh, older woman and, you know, I got to hear them share the stories of, you know, the highlights that they had with her, in, in their life. And then, you know, they'd be laughing and then they'd be crying and everything in between. And so I got to thinking like, what would my family and my friends, but most of all, what would my three younger brothers say about me if I were to leave this world today? And so, um, you know, based on my patterns that I had developed in college, where I started to turn to the things of the world rather than, you know, standing up for myself, I had felt like I had let them down in being the big brother and providing the example that they needed. And so my fight to your point earlier was not about me. It was about literally earning one more chapter so I could rewrite the ending of the story so that I could be that big brother that they could look up to. And so I carried that with me into each and every treatment. You know, it wasn't, Um, you know, the way I looked at it was like, I'm not going to beat cancer with one treatment. Um, so I'm going to stack as many as I can and try to get, put myself in a position where I could do as many treatments as I can. Cause again, they would do blood work. You had to meet their qualifications to even qualify for the next treatment. And so, you know, like their expectations for me, you could do 14 treatments in a week. And so the first week their goal for me was nine and I did 11. Second week, their goal for me was seven because it it kicks the shit out of you. Like, I mean, you're shaking and then you're shivering and the fevers and the, the vomiting. And I lost 35 pounds in a month and a half. A few close calls, my organs are starting to shut down. And so it's like, you're right there looking death in the face. And, and so that's why I believe like cancer gave me something to fight for at a time when I felt like life wasn't worth fighting for because it was right there. It was like, you want an out? Here's your out. Like, we could take this from you anytime, but, um, you know, keep fighting. And so it was how many treatments could I stack to put myself in the best position to, to beat that thing. And, and so, uh, you know, that was where my mind started to shift. And then, uh, things, things changed when I got out of the hospital. So, um, that, that was my reason for my fight was my three younger brothers. And we got super close during this time. I, I don't, I'm so blown away right now. Um, so, but there's more to the story, right? And that's what I love. This is, you see this, this model over here that I'm interviewing, uh, who's looking all sleek and, and crazy, but that's not the case, right? When you got out or was that, did you gain it after you got out or how did that work? 
Yeah. So I lost the weight while I was in the experimental treatment and then my appetite came back, but my energy didn't. And so, um, you know, during the treatments, I wasn't eating at all, really. Um, maybe, maybe a meal every day or every other day. And so that's why I lost so much weight. I couldn't taste, I couldn't smell all of those things kind of went out the window. Um, but, uh, after I got out of there, I started to put weight on really quickly because again, I was super lethargic. I uh, wasn't very active uh, because I was still kind of recovering and a lot of the side effects are fatigue and, and those sort of things. And so interestingly enough, and I share this story a lot, but one of the things that, uh, one of the things that I did uh, around the, the treatments that I was taking is I would never read the brochures. So I, I'm a big relationship person. So I developed a relationship with my doctors and built full trust in them because they're, they already know more about medicine than I could ever learn in my life. And so I, I developed a relationship with them to be able to trust them as an expert. And so anytime, cause they have to hand you the book of like, um, like what, this is what the side effects could be. And this is what you're getting into by taking this treatment. And I would always just hand the brochure to my mom and I wouldn't even look at it. And they're like, what in the hell are you doing? Like, you don't want to know what you're taking. And I'm like, no, I trust you. And so, um, I don't want to plant any of these negative seeds of what could go wrong. Um, I just want to focus on what could go right. And so that, that was a game changer for me. Yeah. I've been, not to relate it to life, because you, you went through craziness, but we as people are want to be in control of everything, yet we don't have the degree, we haven't learned it, and you have made the decision that I've made. I'm not going to waste any of my negative thoughts. I'm not going to waste any of my time on worrying about subjects or trying to get in somebody's business when this is what they spent their whole life doing. <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? It's in life and investing. I don't go to discount tire and tell them how to put the tires on my car. But we, as especially alpha males, we think that we know everything and, and we want to put our nose in everything. And that is an amazing, because I, because what I envision, right. Is that you're so removed from what could go wrong that you're only thinking about what could go right and you're putting the trust in them. And I would imagine that was a game changer for the momentum and the, and the, and the thoughts that were going on. In your head. Yeah, totally. And it was like, you know, total buy-in. And that's one of the blessings too, that I think comes with cancer that people don't realize what they have in front of them is like, prior to cancer, I was such a people pleaser. Again, that's where all that tension was building up in my, inside of me, you know, with the anxiety and the, the depression and, you know, leading me down that path of avoidance. But once you, uh, they talk about it as like a cancer card, playing the cancer card. Like, <laughs> we can talk about abusing the cancer card if you want. Uh, you know <laughs> what? A, you know what? I bet it's as bad as people abusing the kid card too. Yeah. <laughs> getting out of uh, tickets and things like that. But um, yeah, it was just using the cancer card to the extent that like the using the cancer card to say no, to say no to people. And, you know, um, one of the books that I, I read um, is the energy bus and it was written by a guy that I actually interviewed on, on, on my podcast. He's a New York times bestseller. His name is John Gordon and he's a strong Christian man. And, uh, he wrote the energy bus uh, and it's about a guy who loses his job, his car breaks down. So he's got to take public transportation to work and he's just, you know, couldn't be in a lower place. Uh, he thinks the whole world's working against him and the bus driver's name is Joy. And so she's just this huge light and the lessons that she teaches him are like, look, your life is a bus. You get to control who you let on and off of your bus. And so for me, it was like, who am I going to let on my bus during this cancer journey? And it was like, if you didn't have total buy-in on the fact that, you know, we're going to beat this thing one way or the other, you didn't have a place on my bus. And that was just that. And, you know, there were some weird things that happened. Like, you know, I never lost all my hair, but when I take showers, I could feel it in my hands and I could see it. So it was definitely falling out. I never had to shave my head, but it's interesting to 
kind of come full circle with like expectations. People just expect you to lose your hair when you have cancer, but I didn't. And so I was very cognizant of where I was drawing energy from. And it was from the guys that I was coaching. And so I would go, you know, it was winter time while I was in the ICU. And so I'd watch them compete in basketball and wrestling. And that would fuel me up. Like watching those guys compete in other sports fueled me up and I got to see them. And, you know, it was some sense of normalcy for me, but because I hadn't lost my hair, I, I caught wind that like people were saying, Oh, it can't be that bad. Like he hasn't even lost his hair. And I just saw him at the wrestling meet last weekend. It was like, I literally almost died last week in the ICU. Like they had the paddles ready for me to flatline so they could use them on me. And you're just making these assumptions that, Oh, it's not that bad. Cause he hasn't lost his hair. And it's so like, if I can't please everyone as a cancer patient, how am I ever going to please everyone just as a normal human being? And so that's where I was just like, that stuff doesn't even matter anymore. Dude, we are so damn similar. It scares me. I have not had cancer. So that's not what I'm saying, guys. So just calm down. Okay. But what I'm saying is when I made the decision to flip the narrative and get clean, I envisioned me as a speeding train of positivity. And I don't give a shit if you're mother, brother, sister, father, if you're not going to be on the positive train, you're going to get the F out the way. And I just can't do it because this world is hard enough and you just hit the hammer on the nail. If you can't please people as a cancer patient, then what the fuck are we doing every day? Yeah. And I, uh, I hate that you have to use that disclaimer because I don't think it's necessary for, well, well, think about it. Think about it this way. Everybody says that quitting drugs or quitting alcohol is hard because you can't drink. I disagree. The hardest part is showing up as that person, meaning the drug head or the alcoholic into relationships where they only know you as that. Yeah. And then they're upset because you're trying to better your life. That's the hard part. Yeah. No, I meant the disclaimer of like, oh, oh I, I haven't had cancer, so I can't relate to it. Oh, and good. So like yeah. the thing that I've learned is that adversity is a universal experience. So it's not so much the what we experience, but it's how it makes us feel and how we respond. Mm. And so my whole thing is like adversity is this universal experience that can not only unite us because it, right? Like we've gone through different things, but we can relate on so many different levels. Um, and so we can use that adversity regardless of how it's happened to unite us and transform us into the people, teams, and organizations that we are meant to become. Yeah. You are a remarkable SOB, man. I'm telling you because you know why I didn't, you know why I didn't share my story or didn't, I don't think I got sober for the longest time because I didn't view my story my story, meaning what happened to me as valuable because I had the opportunities. I grew up on the country club. I had the dad that was a doctor and I wasn't molested or I wasn't, didn't have cancer. And you just said it right there. Adversity, no matter what it looks like, is still adversity. And we yep. can unite over that. And you just changed my life with that statement, dude. I'm telling you. Yeah. I mean, I've used my own adversity uh, and vulnerability to be able to relate to, I, I had the same feelings. It's like, I, I met a guy who grew up in Rwanda during the genocide at nine years old and lost a third of his family to machete or machine gun. And like, how am I supposed to relate to that? But the feelings that he felt, the resentment and, you know, towards the perpetrators and, you know, things like that, the feeling of having something taken away from you are all the same it doesn't matter what we experience. It's, it's how we experience it, how it makes us feel and how we move forward. And, and more, and as people, if we can show compassion and, and, and lift up instead of, instead of project that we need to be right or our ideals on somebody and just have compassion and say, you know, I'm sorry you went through that. Right. Like, look, everybody's had something, they have to, you know, if you haven't, I don't know, you're probably hiding, right? Yeah. But that is an amazing point. And, and something I want to harp on, because you told me the story when we talked, you were gaining weight, you were overweight. And this is, this is where the story is going to turn. 
like you just made a decision, right? You were like, dude, enough. This is, I can't. Yeah. So I had this dream and this vision of, you know, speaking to hundreds, thousands of people, whatever, whoever would listen at that point uh, to my story. Cause um, I had this friend who was a baseball coach and um, he, he uh, had a movie made about him and he's got into motivational speaking. And during my cancer journey, he said, you know, Dylan, one of the, it, when this is all over, you're going to speak and share your story uh, and inspire a ton of people. And just planting of that seed, I had the vision of speaking on stage and I did all this mind work while I was in the ICU because I was in a hospital bed for 23 and a half hours a day. You know, the only time I got up was to go to the bathroom or do my laps in the hallway with the physical therapist. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I was doing the work mentally, but at some point you got to turn those beliefs and that uh, thought of potential into action in order to get a different result. And so it was like, uh, no one's going to take me serious when I look more like Chris Farley uh, than than a motivational speaker. You know, it's going to be like, yeah, this guy's all talk. He, he's talking the talk, but he clearly is not walking enough. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, no, look, guys, look, <laughs> I can't even look. It matters, right? Dude, I'm dead serious. Like, look, if you're saying you're a millionaire and you're 100 pounds overweight, I don't give a shit. It doesn't matter because you're, there's not parts of your life that that you're that you're that you're failing. I don't give a shit, right? You're a hundred. I mean, call it what it is. It is what it is. Like, yeah, yeah. And so you know, I I just I knew. So I had to have six months of clean scans before they would take me off of the treatment. So kind of long story short, I finished the experimental trials. Thought I was out of the woods with everything. I moved out to Colorado the first time in 2015. And uh, my first scan out here showed that there was two small tumors in my liver that were starting to grow again. And so uh, there was still a lot of uncertainty in my life. And so I, I just said, you know, the timing is not right here. So I moved back home to doctors that I was, again, I'd built the rapport and was familiar with. And by this point, we had bought enough time to where there was an FDA approved option on the market um, that they thought based on my success with the experimental treatment, I would have good success with, with this new option. And so I would go down every three weeks while I was, you know, working full time at a bank and I would do outpatient. So it'd take about an hour and a half to, uh, inject the treatment and I would, you know, do scans and whatever. And then every three weeks I would go down again. And so the, it was a lot less intense. I was maybe a little bit tired in the afternoons after those treatments. Sometimes I would go back to work. Sometimes I wouldn't. But, um, you know, when I weighed in to do my last treatment and I had the date circled as my first clean scan, I marked it out six months from there. And I said, this is the day I'm going to do my last treatment or, you know, the month uh, that I was going to do my last treatment. And uh, that was going to be that. And so, uh, you know, I weighed in for my last treatment at 260 pounds and I just like this enough is enough. Whether the um, side effects were real, whether they were created in my mind or, you know, a product of the treatments, I, I'm done. The line is drawn in the sand. And so I, you know, started small. I just started working out and then I quickly realized that, you know, I couldn't work out hard five days a week only to undo it in two days of two nights of drinking on Friday, drinking on Saturday, throw in a 3 a.m. pizza in there, you know, Saturday night or Friday night or whatever. And, you know, pretty soon you've just undid everything you worked hard for in those five days leading up to it. And so it was like small tweaks. I always say small hinges swing big doors, right? Like it's just the smallest tweaks that we can make in our life that can have the lasting impacts. And so um, I cut out drinking, which therefore cut out the 3 a.m. pizzas on Friday and Saturday night. Um, and then, you know, I'd lose 10 pounds. And then it was like, what else can I do? I'd hit a plateau. So I was like, well, I'm eating out for lunch three days a week or whatever. And so I started taking my meals to work or I'd walk home and eat my lunch and then come back to work. And so lose 10 more pounds. What more can I do? Uh, you know, so it was cut down my rest periods, less bullshitting in the, in the weight room and really getting after it, keeping my heart rate up um, and that sort of thing. And then, you know, I looked back 18 months later and I was down 60 pounds. And so again, it wasn't anything massive that I did overnight. Uh, and it wasn't even 
you know, during the cancer that I made that change, it was literally drawing a line or a circle on the calendar and saying, this is it. I'm making a change. And so now when I look back at my life, it was like there was a pre-cancer Dylan, there was a cancer Dylan, and there's a post-cancer Dylan. And so that's, that has helped me kind of partition those things to say, I am not this. I'm not defined by any of those things. Um, and it's really been allowed me to turn the page to say, what's next? What do I want the next chapter in my book to look like? And how do I want that to read? And so again, it's taking that pen back to say, hey, I'm going to control the things I can control. There's some things that I can't control and I'm going to rely on, you know, experts and things like that. But um, it gives you some sense of being able to control the inputs in order to get the desired outputs. Again, kind of creating those systems versus focusing on a single endpoint. Amazing. And I'm going to, I'm going to take it in a direction that you probably didn't see coming because I want to show the real side of everything. Because yeah. you, you made the comment to me, and I want to sit there for a minute because it's important. You have a story. You've spoken on stage. You have a podcast. All these things, right? You must, I mean, you must be worth like $10 million, right? I mean, it's all good. You live in a mansion. But you made a point to me that has always stuck with me since our conversation. Because you have a job now because, yeah. of co because of COVID, because you were speaking on stages, and you had to adjust. Again, you had to adjust again. Like, yeah, you have a story to tell and it's amazing. And I, we're going to, I'm going to help you get everywhere. I'm going to tell everybody I know I'm already sending this to 20 people, but this is the real side of it is that you told me that you felt like you lost your twenties dealing and beating cancer. And now it's time to go make some money so you can invest and you can live the life that you've always wanted. Right. And that's, like your story's amazing, but then there's the real world, right? Where you got to pay the bills and everything, which I think is such a, an interesting, delicate dance because you would think like, oh, I, you know, I beat it, which is commendable and amazing on 90 million levels. But there's also like, you're just trying to make some money and like get back to living, right? Yeah. 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 And I think that where, you know, that's where, uh, I was supposed to fight in that Haymakers for Hope event this year, the boxing event where, uh, you know, it's a, it's a fundraiser for young adult cancer survivors. <clears throat> and one of their, one of their slogans is uh, not all fights end at the bell. And so uh, I've gotten introduced to so many other people, cancer survivors, whatever. And again, the way the expectations in society are that the fight is over when you ring the bell, your last treatment. But again, like that was the beginning of a new fight for me, the fight to lose the weight. And so there's this always like this next thing for me is what's, what, what's my next fight. And so now, you know, it's building a foundation because yeah, I wasn't working. I mean, I got my first full-time job at 27 um, because I was in and out of treatments and you know, just trying to survive for those five or six years. And so <clears throat> now it's like my number one goal has always been, and it's interesting, you know, so many times our, our goals come from our gaps. And so I had this gap of not growing up with my biological father. I had a great stepdad, but I've always wanted to be a dad. And I kind of taken that role on with my three younger brothers, which is why I was motivated by that during my story. And so I've always wanted to be a father and a husband and it hasn't happened yet, but I'm building the foundation uh, for that. You know, like I'm, I'm, I'm breaking the ground to be able to build that when the opportunity comes. And so that's my next fight is like, that's why I want to build financial foundation because I haven't had financial security because I've been sick. You know, fortunately, I've had my mom and my family to support me through that financially. But now it's time to uh, to change the game. And that's that's the next fight. So um, I'm a burn the boats, whatever it takes mentality. And I've stumbled upon a great opportunity that's going to allow me to continue to speak when, when that's a viable option again. But uh, yeah, just continuing to share my story with uh, as many people as I can uh, oh. with the, with the perspective of, of helping them fight their fight. Well, first of all, 
I'm going to be running a little group of entrepreneurs and investors down here in Texas, and we're going to have you down. I'm going to show you around. We're going to work out a bunch. Uh, I'll bring a I'll bring a UFC fighter down. We'll get a nice training weekend in, just personal development, and get on the lake, and we'll do all that stuff. But but uh, sounds like a terrible time. We shouldn't do it. But uh, but I but I want to say so it's recorded and so everybody knows. Like, thank you, Leland for introducing me to this amazing human you are like, I feel blessed that you're in my life now that we know each other. And that last hour that we just did, like I'll listen to it over and over again. I I'm sending it to 20 people when I get off this call. And I just want to thank you for, for being open and honest and sharing your story and, and, and really giving the people a look into a mindset, which I believe is just getting warmed up but just such an amazing perspective on the tips and tools on life, how to really digest some things that maybe aren't so easy. And, you know, we sit here guys, and and this is very important. I think you would say the same thing. We sit here and we talk about our sobriety. Like it's so easy. (laughs) It, It wasn't guys. We're just at a different place right now, but I can go back there with you. And just like we did on this call and know that this man and this man right here are here for anybody that's needed. And this is the path that we've chosen and we're happy to jump on the grenade and we're happy to lift you up when it's not needed because this is our why. And this is why we want to show the fuck up. And I know that he, I I don't want to speak for you, but I believe you feel the same way. Yeah. uh, You know, my circles got smaller during, during all of this. And that's one of the things that I had to, you know, become okay with is it's not about the number of friends that show or followers that show up on your pro profiles. Um, because everybody's wants to be there when life is a party. Um, but it's about who shows up in the trenches when you, you find yourself in the fight for your life. And, you know, there was people that showed up that I had no idea would be there for me when I was at my worst. You know, a lot of people wanted to be there when I was at my best, uh, depending on how you want to define that. But, uh, uh, but yeah, it was like, you know, your circles get smaller, but those bonds get stronger. And so you get stronger together um, rather than, you know, worrying about who's going to be there or flaking, you know, this weekend or next weekend. And so it's like, don't be afraid or intimidated by the fact that um, you're going to lose some people. Uh, that's okay you know, you have to, uh, you have to trim the, trim certain parts of a, a, of a tree or a plant if you want it to bear the best fruit and life is no different. You know, people come and people go. Um, but those that remain, uh, I'll pick up the phone any time of day for those, for the, for those people. And, and, uh, anybody who, uh, needs that support, I'll be there for them. And that team, that team that'll pick up the phone any day is on mother F and defeated baby. Cause we've yep. been through the fires and you can't, you can't mess with us. Yeah, absolutely. Well, dude, I appreciate it. If they wanted to find out more about you, if they wanted to stay in contact with you or reach out to you, find out when you're speaking, when you can finally speak again, how would they do that? Yeah. You can just find me at uh, Dylan slattery.com. So it's D Y L A N uh, like Bob Dylan and Slattery, S-L-A-T-T-E-R-Y.com. Uh, you can check out my podcast, uh, Stage 4 to On Stage. Um, I have some cool interviews there, and uh, if uh, I've taken a little hiatus from it, but we'll have to get you on the show. I can't wait. They ain't ready, baby. They, <laughs> they ain't ready. That'll be all fire. I, I get to do – I'm so pumped because I get to do two tomorrow that's not mine. I get so excited to be on other people's because I feel like, uh, I like, I'm always doing mine sometimes. <laughs> yeah, no, I hear you. I, I, uh, I feel like I let everyone talk on my own and, and people are like, you don't talk much on your own show. And it's like, yeah, that's cause I'm there. You're for not them. supposed like, to. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're uplifting. Read expert secrets, bro, by Russell Brunson. You'll be fine. Yeah. But, uh, dude, I appreciate it, my man. Uh, I can't wait. You guys, sorry, you're not invited. I'm going in November to Colorado guys weekend. I can't wait to hang out with all these crazy people. So I dude, if y'all like this episode, make sure you send it to your friends, share it, send it around, let everybody hear it guys. And thank you so much. Thanks Austin. God bless. 
Thank you for listening to Construct Your Life with Austin Lenny. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and pay it forward by sharing with a friend. Most importantly, take this opportunity to start constructing your life by taking immediate action on what you learned. For show notes, resources, and more information on one-on-one coaching with Austin, visit constructyourlifepodcast.com.